This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. That's true. You were single, Dan, in grad school. I was single for so long. So long. We thought you would never find someone, Dan. But you did. You did. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Hello PhD a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we dip into the listener mailbag to answer your questions about managing relationships during grad school, writing research statements, and more. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 152. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. He's back! He's back. I'm, back. <laughs> I'm, I'm not so alone. It was quite nice to have a vacation, to hear a brand new Hello PhD episode that required zero work from me. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you still had to edit some of the audio, so you didn't totally get off the hook. If you had trained me to be more capable with that, I, I would have done it all. But hopefully you had a great trip. Was it nice to be away? Oh, it was fantastic. And I greatly appreciate you, Dan, filling in for me uh, in the Hello PhD studios. And yeah, if you can believe it or not, I was editing uh, episode 151 from a camper in Florida (laughs) along the Atlantic coast. Isn't technology great? Amazing story. Uh, Luckily, I had good conversation with uh, people that weren't you. So I, I got very lucky to find somebody to interview that could talk to me. Uh, so that it wasn't just me rambling. I'll tell you, Dan, I am glad you did that interview, and it was very timely for me. I am, uh, I have since, I'm serving on a study section uh, up, coming up soon, and I was reviewing some grants and was writing up some of my feedback for the authors of the grant, and I actually went back and made some edits based on uh, what I learned in your interview about being more thoughtful and kind during your comment, thirty percent fewer f words. I'm really <laughs> proud of you, Josh. Yeah, and you know what? I wasn't, you know, I wasn't being like a total jerk, or at least I wasn't trying to. But I went back and reread some of the critiques that I'd written, and just thought made a few minor changes just to make sure they were completely objective and to the point, and not bringing in language that can be construed as uh, being personal or with feelings. So I think that's great. It's it's probably impossible to write those comments the first time without injecting your own personality into them or injecting your own experience. I felt this way while I was writing this. Uh, and I think I, what what we're going to do is we're going to go back through the things we wrote, write it, write it how you want to the first time, and then just go back and edit it, clean it up, make sure that exactly what you said, Josh, that you've taken out anything that might be more personal and less useful. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, greatly appreciated that episode. And anyone out there who hasn't listened to it yet, highly recommend uh, you go back and check out episode 151. Dan, I mentioned I was in Florida. And while I was there, I did pick up some local beer. And this one we are having tonight is from down that way. Uh, This is the Screamin' Reels IPA from Saltwater Brewery in Delray Beach, Florida which is just a little bit down the Atlantic coast from where I was. Josh went on vacation and all I got was this stupid IPA. Did I get that (laughs) t-shirt? Better than the t-shirt, Dan. You get the IPA. A funny story about this, I might have mentioned on the show before, I enjoy doing some fishing. And 
I took my kayak down there and was enjoying exploring the mangrove islands. It was uh, really a lot of fun, but the fishing was not going so well. And so my wife went out to the grocery store and she brought me this Screamin' Reels IPA to try to bring me luck with fishing. And it didn't work, but uh, I enjoyed the beer. Yeah, reels, reels spelled like the fishing reels, not like for reels. Uh, Dan, what do you think of the IPA? I, I think it's a perfectly standard IPA. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't stand out. Wait, do you get any special notes from it? You know, this one. Uh, I, I will go ahead and just say this is um, this is not one of my favorite IPAs. This one has more of the the bitter characteristic without some of the corresponding. Um, tropicalness or even the dankness that we enjoy yeah this one just gives me a little bit of a bitter bomb which is is not really my preference and it and it fit your experience fishing that day so maybe that's poetic <laughs> the beer and my mood was bitter well thanks thanks for bringing it back it is the least you could do josh it is the least dan i did want to also make sure we say thank you to our new patreon patron <laughs> special thank you to olivia Thank you so much. And a message from our friends at Promega. Sometimes when you're in grad school, it seems impossible to take any time for yourself. Unlike Josh, who just took a vacation, uh, you're burning the candles at both ends. You have too many irons in the fire. You're juggling too many metaphors at the same time. But the Promega Student Resource Center has recently launched a new section focused on helping you balance the demands of research with your overall wellness. A healthy mind and body are crucial for accomplishing your scientific goals, as well as living a full and rich life. Visit promega.com slash hellophd to learn more. Also, Dan, wanted to share a special message from our friends at BioBox. Do you work with human or mouse sequencing data? BioBox Analytics offers end-to-end data analytics for scientists and clinicians working with next-generation sequencing data. Leverage no-code bioinformatic pipelines, generate publication-ready plots at the click of a button, and consolidate insights from popular public databases. Sign up for the waitlist and be the first to gain early access to your free BioBox account at BioBox.io. All right, Dan, let's dip into the listener mailbag. All right, it's been piling up while you were gone. All right, Dan, it is time for another listener mailbag. Always love seeing what our listeners have been up to and what they want us to talk about. Yeah, I dug out a few things for us this week, Josh. Um, and the first one is a, a comment from Nadia. She says, thank you so much for the podcast. I discovered Hello PhD at the beginning of the pandemic and have listened to every single episode since. I don't even know that's possible, but <laughs> I appreciate that. And as we mentioned, you can listen to every episode now. Not that we recommend Yeah, that's it, right. But all the way back and- to episode one. Nadia continues, I have learned a lot and has changed my perspective about my program and supervisor tremendously. Since listening to Hello PhD, I feel less lonely and feel like there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I've joined multiple students groups and other organizations to work on my soft skills. So right there, I am, we could end this message and I'd be so happy. Less lonely, working on soft skills, joining student groups, see the light at the end of the tunnel. All things that I wish I had done in my graduate training. That's why we do this, Dan. Yeah. Uh, So Nadia goes on, I did my candidacy exam during the first quarantine and started working on a review paper. After the first quarantine, all my cell lines had mutated and I have lost my phenotype, unfortunately. Our lab shut down again for a second quarantine and I've used this time to work on my review and reflect on what I want to do after my PhD. I'll be going back soon 
And even though it feels like I have lost a whole year of research, I'm hopeful for the future. I also got a puppy and love every minute of it. Thank you so much for doing the podcast and addressing both relevant and difficult topics. I do hope you bring the etymology puzzles back again. What do you think, Josh? Etymology puzzles? Nadia definitely did go back to the archives. Do you see why I pulled out this particular message out of all the emails we get, Josh? You know, people who are newer to the show may not realize that for at least a year or two, we had the Dan's etymology puzzle at the end of the show. Maybe we should bring that back. It was, it was a lot of work to create etymology puzzles every week. So I appreciate that, Nadia. And uh, we look forward to hearing how your work progresses and best of luck to you. Yeah. It's amazing. Thank you so much, Nadia, for uh, for sending that message. And also, Nadia did mention that her favorite beer is Delirium Red, a Belgian fruit ale. I think we need to have more Belgian beers on the show, Dan. I am totally in favor of that. Uh, all right, Dan, we, got, we also got a comment from Simon. Uh, hello, hello, PhD. I've been listening to your podcast for a few years. And while I still have a lot of work to do before I reach the PhD, I want you to know your podcast has been a great help to me in staying focused on my end goal and working hard to have the best PhD application I can muster. When I was feeling down and my objective felt so far away in the future, listening to your podcast has helped me get back on track and staying grounded, especially during COVID times. If you're curious, I'm studying electrical engineering with the intent to do a PhD in hardware implementations of AI. Very cool. Thank you, Simon. I didn't know we had uh, electrical engineering listeners, but exciting. Yep, Dan. And this next one, a friend of the show, Monica Felu Mohair, who is with iBiology, wrote in with something that might be useful to our listeners. Remind us what what episode she was on. She's a guest. Yeah, Monica was on episode 92, Making Time for Science Communication, uh, which is a fantastic episode. And I know a lot of our listeners are interested in science communication. And Monica found a way to leverage that interest into doing it as a job after her PhD. And she wrote in to say, I want to share that iBiology has a new and improved courses platform that you can now sign up for. Share your research, our free self-paced course focused on effective communication to help you give a good research talk. The course focuses on providing scientists with practical research communication advice, and as you go through it, the course helps you build a plan to help you craft a good research talk. Feel free to share with trainees and colleagues. Done. We We did it. We did it. So check that out. Uh, Just Google search iBiology, and you'll find those resources and many others, by the way. Yeah, and I'll put a link to in the show notes so that people can get to that quickly. So if you're interested in science communication, and Josh, I noticed your shirt says science communication on it right now. Oh, that's true. It does. Uh, this is from the ComSciCon uh, Triangle Edition. It says, I'm a science communicator. It says so <laughs> on my shirt. <laughs> oh, amazing. All right, Dan. Well, um, these were more of comments than a question, I guess you would say. Well, Yeah, well, now we're going to get to the questions, Josh. And I was, I was saving the difficult ones for last year. Um, we got a couple of questions from a, a listener we're just going to call A. And A had a few questions, some of which uh, I replied to and some of which we'll read here. Uh, so the first one is, uh, A is basically applying to graduate schools or in graduate school. And A's partner is a medical doctor. And so... Uh, They asked, how do you deal with being a graduate student and having a partner who also has a career and also taking care of kids? So if you wanted a difficult question, Josh, you did say you you did save the difficult ones for the end. Um, You know, Dan, this is what I think. Um, You know, one thing we 
we do try to give a lot of advice on this show for, for trainees, but one thing we try to avoid is giving advice on topics that we are not the ones best able to give that advice. And, and you and I both, we went through, or, or, or me certainly, I went through all of grad school uh, with a partner, but neither of us went through grad school with kids, though we both have kids now. Uh, going through our graduate training with kids is not something we've experienced. So how about if we tackle the first part of that question, uh, dealing with grad school while having a partner? And I'd like to just put it out to our listening audience. I bet there are people out there listening who are going through their graduate training with kids, parenting children uh, right now. And so if that's you, um, write into us, uh, podcast at hellophd.com, or you can send us a message on Twitter at hellophd. And just let us know what advice do you have for someone who is going into grad school with a family? How do you take care of kids and do your training? Uh, let us know how you do that. Give us some tips. And Josh, I, I want to hear what our listeners have to say about kids. And we're going to talk a little bit about going through graduate school with a partner who is also working. But I do want to point out, just before we get started on that, that having a partner who is an MD or also works in in the university setting is is a slightly different problem. Um, it's what's called the two body problem because you're both trying to get jobs, possibly at the same university, and it's something that we talked about back in episode 101, the Hell PhD Guide to Grad School Applications, uh, with Dr. Beth Bowman and. Dr. Bowman deals with admissions at Vanderbilt University, and she had a lot of great advice for what it looks like on the the admissions committee side when they have an applicant who is married to somebody who also needs a job within the university setting, or even sometimes she talked about in the same town. And so uh, I, I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode because I think she's got great advice for the major leverage, the the different strings you can pull to get your partner or your spouse uh, an opportunity in that same university or in that same town. And so that's a great place to start. But go ahead, Josh. Tell us about being married or having a partner in grad school. As the single person, I have nothing to say about it. (laughs) That's true. You were single Dan in grad school. I was single for so long. So long. We thought you would never find someone, Dan, but you did. You did. (laughs) (laughs) Science was your one true love. Eventually, someone took pity on (laughs) me. Eventually. Yeah. You know, it can be really difficult. As many of our listeners know, grad school can be so all consuming if you're not careful. Um, And that can happen to you whether you have a partner or you don't. You know, it's easy for the days to melt into weeks, to melt into months. And, and I remember never really knowing because, uh, you know, the type of program we were in, you weren't even locked into that academic calendar. So half the time I didn't even really know, I, you know, it would sneak up on me that, oh, it's it's fall. Oh, it's Christmas time. I didn't realize that was coming. Um, but I think being very open about the challenges that you face, being very open about even the way your program works, when the busy times are, when the deadlines are, when the big obstacles are coming can help to set expectations with a partner who may not uh, be going through the same type of program. You know, grad school is a really weird thing. And unless you've been through it or also going through it, certain things won't necessarily make sense. So maybe you've got a qualifying exam coming up or you're getting ready for lab meeting. Uh, or preparing for a journal club. You know, these things might not make sense unless you explain them. 
especially if you have two partners both going through school but going through different school. Some of the things you may have to do for graduate school may be very different than the types of expectations on a partner who's going through medical school and vice versa. There might be things your partner faces going through an MD program that are totally different and don't make sense to you as a PhD student. So I think first, just making sure your partner understands um, how things work and what the the major stressor points are that are coming up can help to set expectations. I think beyond that, and this is really true for, I think this is true even beyond partners, is the fact that graduate training can be so all-encompassing. Try to set some boundaries for yourself, making sure you are carving out time for the relationships and interests that you have as a human being outside of your training, I think is is very important. And if that involves um, loved ones back at home or that you're um, you know, doing life with, um, make sure you're carving out time for those things because they are just as important, if not more so, than the training you're doing. Yeah, I have to say, so I didn't I didn't meet my my now wife until I was pretty close to graduating maybe a year or two, I don't know. But I have to say, and maybe Josh, you can expound on this. It was nice to spend time with somebody who wasn't a graduate student and who wasn't wrapped up in the the same ball of anxieties, uh, who didn't have the myopia about what the world was about. Because I think when you're in the graduate training program, your world collapses down to this like one experiment. And everything is hinging on it. And ha- having somebody who's outside of that and can say, I get what you're doing. I get that it's important. But also, we should go to the park. You know what I mean? It's, it's, I think it's really, um, that would have helped me maybe in my first one or two years to have somebody who was outside of that world, but also was supportive of me and cared about my success and things like that. So I don't know. There, there's this trade-off to me. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, Dan. I think general advice to any graduate student is if especially if you're moving to a new place where you don't have a an existing social network having some some friendships and meeting some people who are outside of your scientific training can be so important and that was one benefit that I found having a partner um, who came to graduate school with me who was um, an English teacher not uh, not in science at all not only does that give you a person at home that can break you out of your scientific bubble, but that also makes it easier to open you up to opportunities to meet different people in the community besides people who are at the university in your program doing science. You used to hang out with teachers periodically. I remember this. <laughs> I will say, yeah, hanging out with teachers did stress me out because I found that the the prototypical scientist is an introvert like me and the prototypical middle or high school teacher is an extrovert and their parties were so stressful to me i have to tell you <laughs> so it comes at a oh, cost you made it you made it through <laughs> i did i did and you know Dan, we had a lot some of our best friends that we still have today um, you and i were friends and, and hung out but we had a lot of great friends who were doing vastly different things that were nowhere near science and i think it just helps give you perspective that there's this bigger world that exists outside of academia and outside of science and helps give you the perspective that, okay, the way things work in academia, that's one thing, but you can put it in context of the rest of the world. Yeah. So when this pandemic, when we all have vaccines, whether you have a, a significant other, a partner or not, go out and, and find a hobby that is not related to your research and, and go meet people because that is valuable. 
Josh A had another question, and I think this one um, is really related to applications, so maybe we can answer this one as well. He said, could you do an episode on writing a research statement? I just stumbled upon this as a requirement for one of my applications, and I don't know where to start. I am not that deep into the subject, but I already included in my cover letter a brief summary of my latest research, why I want to do research, and where I want to go with my research in the future, and how this project would fit into that very briefly. I don't want to repeat what I wrote in my cover letter, but I feel it is the same information. So do you know of applications that ask for a cover letter and a research statement, Josh? So, so the program, I know the program that I've involved with and, and others that I know of um, don't necessarily ask for a cover letter, but do absolutely ask for a, a research statement. So I can speak generally on what a research statement is for and, and what it's used for. And first, it's important to think about the big picture of w- when you put an application together, how is that information going to be used by the program that you're applying to? And really what the people reading that application are looking for is your potential as a researcher. Most graduate programs, that's what you'll be doing is doing research. And so one piece of that puzzle, one piece of data is your research statement. And so this is the opportunity where you can demonstrate that the research you listed out on your CV, you can give a little more detail about, well, what was your role in those research projects And also, did you understand what you were doing and why you were doing it? These research statements are not the place to write about how many microliters you added to that buffer. You know, this really is kind of a big picture overview of the projects you worked on. That being said, I think you do want to make it clear what your role was in those projects. And one thing I tell tell applicants all the time, the research statement in your personal statement in a, in a graduate school application, this is one of the very few times, if the only time in scientific writing where you might use the personal pronoun I. I did this. I worked on this project. You know, most of the time when you write scientific papers, you would at the very least say we did this. Um, but your, your personal statement, your research statement, um, that's really your opportunity to share uh, what you did. And, and not only what you did, but how it fits in the bigger context of Uh, what your lab was working on. As I'm listening to you say this, Josh, and I'm thinking back 150 years ago to when I applied to graduate school, I feel like there is a genre of of personal statement or of application statement where you say, or, or many of us said, I wanted to go into science because... I want to cure cancer or I had this experience as a child that made me want to do this. So there's, there's like this personal narrative about what motivates me. And that feels separate from the, what you're talking about in a research statement, which is here is what I did in a project or in a research lab. Are those, are those two different concepts and they need to stay separate or should we never talk about the, when I was a kid, I wanted to, fly a rocket to Mars? You know, it depends. Those both can be important and some programs... But are they both in the research statement or are they in different sections? I would say different sections. And in fact, you know, in, in the program that I'm involved with, we explicitly ask for different sections, right? So we will ask for a motivation and goals section and then we will ask for a research statement. And we actually make it very clear that you can list those as two completely separate sections, two completely separate writing assignments. That being said, some applicants do blend them together into one unified statement, and that's fine. But what is key is 
you may have a really compelling story and it can be really useful to highlight that about what makes you unique, uh, what makes you motivated to apply to that program, what kind of research do you want to do once you get there. These are all really important things to put in your statement, but you don't want to do that at the expense of putting your research statement in there. That's absolutely um, critical because that is, again, a key data point for admissions committees to really get a feel for the degree to which you understood the research that you listed on your C- on your CV um, and give us a little more information about what part you played in it. So it's quite possible that A's cover letter has too much research statement in it, and these concepts need to have a little bit of separation between them. So the cover letter might be more of a, a statement of interest and and put the description of what research A did in the research statement specifically. Yes. So that, that there's not a duplication of the same information twice. Yeah, I would think a specific research statement, if that's asked for, would go into a bit more detail than you might list on a cover letter, if a cover letter is required. I'm just going to do a headshot next time, just a five-by-seven glossy photo of myself (laughs) doing thumbs up. This this letter or this email came from a European research background, and so it may be slightly different there. Maybe the requirement's a little bit different. If you are a listener who has written a cover letter and a research statement, and we are totally wrong, please write to tell us, and we will correct the record. You know, I will I will add, Dan, one thing that I usually like to see in a research statement, especially if you have had multiple research experiences, is you, you can weave it into a story to a certain degree, right? You can say, rather than, I did this research, and then I did this research, and then I did this research. You know, tell me a little bit about that first research you did, what did you learn from that? And then how did that lead you into seeking out the next opportunity? And then what did you learn there? And how did that seek you into the next, lead you into the next opportunity? And then finally, hopefully, how did that most recent, or how did all those experiences together lead you to be applying for this program right now? Because hopefully something positive or something that happened in those experiences are exactly what motivated you to apply to this program you're applying to now. And it all makes sense uh, at the end of the day. After I was asked to leave in no uncertain terms, <laughs> someone took pity on me and I joined a new lab. That's my, that's my personal statement. I got rejected from med school and that's why I'm here <laughs> applying for your program. Do not write that. I, that's one thing I know from listening to you all these years, Josh. Do not say, I wished I had gone to med school <laughs> and I couldn't get in. Um, okay, well, well, hopefully that helps a little bit, A, and, and we'll look forward to hearing more uh, from our listeners. The last question, Josh, comes from Francis, and the letter goes like this. I'm a first-generation college student currently doing a post-bac in a diversity supplement. I worry that my undergraduate grades will negatively impact my entire application. I know you both have mentioned how one bad grade in isolation won't hold much weight. However, what about a whole semester due to personal issues that could be explained? Would taking graduate-level courses and doing well in them help show admission committees that I'm capable of handling graduate-level courses and my undergraduate performance was not indicative of my potential? Or is my past low performance detrimental to my application? Thank you so much for taking the time to answer my question. Yeah, this is a great question. And this is one one that I hear a lot. Not everyone goes through their undergrad and has a perfect academic record and every course just goes perfectly. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. And one thing I want to make clear is having a bad grade in a course or in multiple courses or having a bad semester 
is not the end of the road for continuing on in science and in research careers and certainly having a semester worth of bad grades. Um, while it is something that you possibly are going to need to at least acknowledge in your application, it is definitely something you can overcome. And one thing I'm glad to hear is that you know, you're doing a post-bac, which, which means you are involved in research currently after you graduated. And I believe we've said this before, but the number one thing you can do to boost your competitiveness for research-based graduate programs is to do research. You expand your network by having somebody else who can write you a strong letter of recommendation, um, and it just demonstrates your your interest and your abilities doing research, and that's going to carry a lot more weight um, than your grades. That being said, you know the question that that was asked: Can it be helpful to take a graduate level course and do well? Um, yeah, that that can be helpful, and if you feel like the weak point in your application are your undergraduate grades. If you are in a position where you have the opportunity to take a graduate level course, maybe you're doing this post-bac research at a university that has graduate level courses. Yeah, if there's a way you can take one of those courses in a field that you're interested in, especially the type of field that you want to do graduate school in, um, yeah, if you can do well on that course, uh, that definitely can alleviate some concern that an admissions committee might have about your ability to do well in their courses. Uh, what you might want to do if you do that, though, is you do well in the grad level course. You may just get a quick note either from the course director of that course to write you just a short letter to make sure that that information gets into your application um, so that the admissions committee will know that you did that. Um, or, you know, at the very least, maybe the lab that you're working in, the PI who might be in that department and familiar with the fact you're taking a course, you could get them to just write a quick note in their letter that my student is also taking this graduate level course with the other grad students and is doing just great. So I have no concern. Um, and I will mention that whether you do or don't take a course, don't necessarily shy away from the fact that you have maybe a, a undergrad GPA you're not super happy with from your current PI. Uh, one thing I hear a lot is, you know, I'll be working with a student who is in a lab, maybe they're an undergrad, maybe they're a post back, and they're doing really well. And then at some point, the PI will see the student's application and be like, I had no idea that student had a 2.7 GPA. They're fantastic. So it can be really powerful in your statement, or sorry, in your application if your PI just head on says, you know, I'm aware that this student in my lab maybe has a GPA that's lower than average for your program, but I'm telling you, this person works in my lab, I work with them every day, and they absolutely have what it takes to do well in science and in graduate school. Having statements like that from a research advisor in a letter can go a long way to alleviating concerns that an admissions committee might have about your transcript. Yeah, there's a Venn diagram I'm imagining, and one of the circles is good at taking tests and the other circle is good at research <laughs> and I was good at the former and not great at the latter and and I'm, I'm sure there are people that are good at both obviously but what matters about in getting a PhD is not being good at taking tests and uh, it, it doesn't sound like this is you know Francis is talking about a long-term difficulty in taking tests it's maybe a semester or some certain classes or a period of time that were stressful personally and maybe distracted took attention away life life happened right so 
I'm not saying that this is an explanation for for where the writer is now, but I'm I'm totally with you, Josh. There are great researchers out there whose GPAs are not the top of their class, but they should be doing research and not taking tests. And and I want to see more of that. I would be remiss if I didn't say that that some of these things we're talking about with regard to GPA not being a good indicator of doing well in science and in research. I have data to back that up, Dan. <laughs> research that that I've been involved in, uh, we we saw just that that how you did in your undergrad GPA uh, was in no way predictive of how many papers you would publish, fellowships you would get, um, graduating from a PhD program. Um, GPA was was not important in the least. Um, I'm, I'm thinking through some of the traumas that a person could experience that would take a semester or take longer than a semester. I mean, I think being a first-generation college student, I think maybe coming from a background where you would be underrepresented in the school, those things could could already make your path more difficult. But Josh, I'm sure you've seen cases where there's been a death in the family. Somebody got mono. There was a bad breakup. Like so many things happen in life. Um, None of them are particularly new, but they can certainly crater six months or a year of your life. And, um, you know, we've all experienced some of them. And, And so I don't think that this is like, you're the first person on earth to have a tough period of time that distracted you from some schooling. And I think just being upfront about this is what happened, or maybe not even talking, if you're not comfortable about talking what happened, but I had this tough period. I have recovered. Look at all the research I've done since period, the end. You're absolutely right, Dan. And you know, in this message, it actually says it was a, a semester and there were some personal issues. You're absolutely right. You know, if you feel comfortable, you know, describing what some of those challenges were. You don't have to go in detail there, but just, you know, yeah, I had, I lost someone I cared about that semester or there was another, uh, there was something I was dealing with. There was some outside factor that really just, you know, really just prevented me from, from doing my best in those courses. People understand, you know, the admissions committee, they're just faculty who are people and they understand that those things happen and they've been through those things too. And I've seen it happen lots of times on admissions committees where there's this, applicant and there's one really bad semester and in the statement it says oh you know what i had to pick up an extra job that semester because this thing happened in my life and it was just hard to focus on studies and they say oh yeah that makes sense you know in the context of look at all this other research they've done and these other classes they've taken sure not worried about that in the least so you're absolutely right there dan i i think covid is going to be one of those things in your your future application letters josh you're going to be reading a lot about how this period of time impacted all of us and to different degrees. So the wheel continues to turn. It sure does. But if you take one thing away, anyone out there who's listening, you know, if you love research and you know that's what you want to do, don't let your GPA follow you around forever and and permanently alter your career path. Um, There are ways to overcome it. You want to ask me the last time somebody asked me what my GPA was, Josh? Hey, Dan, what's your GPA? Uh, I have no idea, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> When's the last time someone asked you your GPA, Dan? I have no idea, Josh. Probably when I applied to grad school, and that's the last time. Yeah, same, same. I find it a little odd. Sometimes people will put their GPA on applications to jobs. Really? <laughs> really? Yeah, I've seen it. I would have never. It, I would have never thought to do that. Now, well, usually, I, I guess it's for a more, more um, maybe a junior person. Okay, but it's always weird to me because I, I don't. 
I don't care what your GPA was. I care what you can do or, or what you have done. So anyway, uh, that's my last thought on that topic, Josh. If our listeners have any questions or topic ideas, obviously we would love to hear them. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love the feedback and it helps new listeners find the show. If you want to support us, you can become a patron. Just go to our website, hellophd.com and click the Become a Patron button or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. And thank you to the ongoing support from our patrons. Josh, welcome back. Are you settled? You ready to get back to work? Um, no, but you know it's it's great to be back. The weather was so nice down in Florida, but it's it's getting nice here too, Dan. Spring is upon us here in North Carolina. It's been beautiful lately. Happening fast. Well, Josh, be safe. I I know vaccines are rolling out everywhere. I don't know how much access graduate students have to them, but I hope for everybody listening, you can get one as soon as possible. I'm still on a list, so we'll just keep waiting. I got my first shot. I can't believe I forgot to say that. You educators are waiting to brag. I am 30% immune to COVID or something like that. Are all researchers getting them or just you? No, I, I would say many of the grad students, if not most of the grad students I know, have already gotten at least their first shot. Um, awesome. A lot of the people I work with, it's, it's moving pretty quickly. Stay in school, kids. You get <laughs> COVID vaccines. All right, Dan, I'll see you next time. We'll see you then. Bye. I just have to adjust knob number 238 on my soundboard for my Zoom meeting. It'll sound better. (laughs) You guys don't have soundboards? Like, rookies?